Welcome to studentofthebible.com. I'm your host, Renee, and I'm a Bible student. I'm glad you are, too. Thank you so much for joining. Pray for discernment and ask God to show you how you can share this information with others and be a blessing. Welcome to my podcast series on miracles. What are miracles? Do they still occur? Have you personally experienced a miracle? Is claiming that something is a miracle just be naive? What does the Bible say about them? C.S. Lewis, in his book titled Miracles, says, Seeing is not believing. For this reason, the question whether miracles occur can never be answered simply by experience. Every event which might claim to be a miracle is, in the last resort, something presented to our senses, something seen, heard, touched, smelled, or tasted. And our senses are not infallible. If anything extraordinary seems to have happened, we can always say that we have been victims of an illusion. If we hold a philosophy which excludes the supernatural, this is exactly what we'll always say. What we learn from experience depends on the kind of philosophy we bring to the experience. It's therefore useless to appeal to experience before we have settled as well as we can the philosophical question, unquote. So, as C.S. Lewis suggests, the best way to start to understand a miracle is to first examine our philosophy to answer the question as to whether miracles occur. So, if we're the scientific sort who want to verify miracles by looking at scientific evidence, this is going to be difficult. History, honestly, will never provide the degree of evidence that we need to unequivocally convince ourselves that a miracle occurred. And if we do believe this way, then we, in effect, are saying that everything that happens, if we eventually know enough, can be explained away without any loose ends. Well, if this is you, then this podcast is not for you, because by definition, You're never going to believe in miracles if you think that eventually all things can be explained. According to Webster, a miracle by definition is a surprising and welcome event that's not explicable by nature or scientific laws and is therefore considered to be the work of a divine agency, unquote. Albert Einstein once said, there are only two ways to live your life. One is as though nothing is a miracle. The other is as though everything is a miracle. And I saw this poster. You don't believe in miracles? Perhaps you've forgotten that you are one. Miracles are a retelling in small letters of the very same story, which is written across the whole world in letters too large for some of us to see. That again is C.S. Lewis. So, how do I do a podcast series on miracles? In the Bible, there are three main words used to refer to a miracle. Sign, wonder, and power. Basically, a miracle is an act of God beyond human understanding that displays God's power, inspires wonder, and 
acts as a sign that God is at work in the world. The God of miracles uses supernatural power to reveal himself to people on earth. And this is cool. The Greek word translated miracle is dunamis, which is where we get our root word dynamite, which means power. God's miracles often defy or overpower the laws of nature, but not always. God can also work within nature to perform a miracle. So in these next few podcasts, we're going to look at miracles where God seems to defy or overpower the laws of nature, but we'll also look at some instances where God works within nature to perform a miracle. Let's start by looking at some times in the Bible when God works with nature to create a miracle. For example, when God parted the Red Sea, he used a powerful wind. Quote, Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind, and it turned into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That's in Exodus 14, verse 21. Now, (laughs) that was pretty cool, and it must have been some very strong wind. I love the Ten Commandments movie with Charlton Heston, where if you look closely at the water, you can actually see fish sort of suspended on the waves on either side of the water as Moses crosses. Yeah, that was a miracle using the power of God and the power of wind. But the miracle didn't stop there. Exodus 14, 26 through 28 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and their horsemen. Moses stretched his hand over the sea, and at daybreak, the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and the horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived, unquote. Why did God perform this miracle? It was to demonstrate to the Israelites that he was going to take care of them, that no barrier could keep God from accomplishing his goals, not even a barrier of water when you have a huge Egyptian army following closely behind you. And imagine the witness that this again showed Pharaoh and his army. Who was this God that even the seas listened to him? Sometimes, We come to a dead end, don't we? We see no way past our circumstances. But remember, nothing can deter God, not even a body of water. God opened a way for the Israelites. The God of wind and water performed a miracle at exactly the right time for the Israelites to cross in order to demonstrate his great power and his love for his people. Exodus 14, 31 says, And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, 
the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant, unquote. How about the story of Daniel in the lion's den? That's definitely a story of God performing a miracle using nature. Now, Daniel is a prophet in the Old Testament, and he's in captivity in Babylon. And he ends up working for the Babylonian government because God's given them this ability to interpret dreams. So Daniel becomes one of King Darius's most trusted advisors. Now, <laughs> when you become a trusted advisor, of course, that's going to cause jealousy among other administrators. And this is what happens. So they plot Daniel's death by convincing King Darius to outlaw prayer. Daniel, being a devout, God-fearing Jew, continues to pray to God despite this new decree to only pray to the king. So as a result, Daniel is sent to the lion's den where he's going to face a bunch of hungry lions and certainly death. The story unfolds in the Old Testament in the book of Daniel in chapter 6. So we're going to look at Daniel 6, verses 19 through 27. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, May the king live forever. My God sent his angel, and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me, because I was found innocent in his sight. Nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. At the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den, along with their wives and children. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Then King Darius wrote to all the nations and peoples of every language and all the earth, May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions, unquote. Wow. So God closed the mouths of the lions. And by doing this, he, he not only spared the life of his faithful servant, Daniel, but did you notice how he has showed a pagan king, King Darius and his court, that he is the God who rescues and saves and performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on earth. And he rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. 
Oh, there are so many more natural miracles in the Old Testament, but let's take a look at some power over nature miracles in the New Testament. It's full of them. Well, let's start with the virgin birth. We looked at this story in my Mary and Joseph podcast series. The gospel writer Luke was a doctor, so he understands birthing and babies, and he testified to the fact that Mary was, in fact, a virgin when she gave birth to Jesus. That is a miracle. Luke chapter 1, verses 34 through 37 tells us that when Mary is visited by an angel named Gabriel and told her she's going to bear a son, we have this discourse. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she, who was said to be unable to conceive, is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. Unquote. What's the reason for the miracle here? It's to fulfill many Old Testament prophecies of the virgin birth. And the miracle is demonstrating to Mary and Joseph and to Elizabeth and to all future believers from here on that nothing is impossible for God. Then we have the wonderful stories of Jesus controlling nature so he can walk on water and calm the seas. In March of last year, I had the privilege of traveling to Israel, and we sailed on the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is about 650 feet below sea level, and it's about 150 feet deep, and it's surrounded by hills on either side, so it's subject to crazy wind gusts and high waves. The lake can go from smooth as silk to white caps, like immediately. Experiencing this, I got to tell you, it was honestly easier for me to understand what a miracle it was for Jesus to calm these seas with his voice. The story of this miracle is found in Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 through 27. Then he got into the boat, and his disciples followed him. Suddenly, a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Lord, save us! We're going to drown! He replied, You of little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, What kind of man is this, even though winds and the waves obey him? Unquote. Now, this story is actually told in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Did you see how this miracle allowed his followers to see that even the wind and the waves obey him? Remember, Jesus is trying to demonstrate that he and the Father are one. He is God incarnate. What about the story of Jesus walking on the water? This is told in Mark, Matthew, and John. So we're going to look at John. Chapter 6, verses 16 through 21. 
When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water. And they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading, unquote. Well, the disciples thought Jesus was a ghost. Remember, this lake is 150 feet deep. They're three and a half miles away from shore. What a witness this miracle was. God was controlling nature. Jesus was able to walk on water. Did you notice how the waters were rough and there was a strong wind? Not that walking on water would be any easier if it were calm, but isn't that an interesting detail? We're going to finish this podcast with some examples of what we'll call miracles of provision. Now, these miracles certainly would come in handy when you have unexpected guests coming to dinner or you're trying to feed a bunch of hungry teenagers. God provides food in the desert. God provides food to thousands of hungry followers of Jesus. And God's going to turn ordinary water into extraordinary wine. Let's take a look at these stories of provision. First, in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus. Now, God has just performed a bunch of miracles to get the Israelites out of Egypt, like the miracle of the ten plagues, and then the parting of the Red Sea. Yet still, the Israelites are grumbling, and they're saying to each other that literally, they were better off in slavery in Egypt than being stuck in the desert. Quote, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around with pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you've brought us out into this desert to starve, unquote. Okay, do you ever grumble to God when you encounter a hardship? Yeah, me too. Of course, the Israelites didn't literally want to go back to Egypt, did they? No, they just wanted their lives to be a bit easier. Their lack of trust in God caused them to only focus on the quickest route of escape. They didn't focus on God's power and wisdom to help them deal with their situation. So, how does God solve their food problem? Here we have a miracle using the power of nature and the power of provision. This story is told in Exodus chapter 16. God causes a bread-like substance that they called manna, because that literally meant, what is it? <laughs> to fall to the ground each day as thin flakes like frost. And the people would gather the manna and grind it like grain, making it into a honey-tasting pancake. And what about me? Well, God provided a miracle for that as well. Quail would come every evening and cover the camp. Exodus chapter 16, verse 8. Moses also said, You will know it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning. Because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You're not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. Unquote. 
Why did God perform this miracle? Did you catch it? So that you will know that it was the Lord who gave you the meat in the evening and the bread in the morning. God wanted to show his people they could trust him to provide for them. Let's turn to the New Testament for God's provision. Jesus' first public miracle was a miracle of provision. He was at that wedding in Cana with his mother Mary and his disciples, and a very embarrassing thing happened. The wedding family had run out of wine. And, well, honestly, no wonder, because wedding celebrations would last a week, and generally, the whole town was invited. Can you imagine? In fact, it was considered an insult to not come to the wedding feast. And it was always the tradition to serve the best wine first. And then as your guests become drunk and therefore less aware of the quality of the wine, then you could serve a lesser quality wine. But you could not run out. That was unheard of. It would break a long tradition of hospitality. And honestly, it would reflect poorly on the family's ability to plan and provide. So what miracle does Jesus perform here? He turns six stone vessels that each hold about 20 to 30 gallons of water into fine wine. Why did he do this miracle? The gospel writer John tells us in John chapter 2, verse 11, this, the first of his miraculous signs Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee, he thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. Unquote. Jesus showed his disciples that he had power over nature and was able to provide the best of everything. Just as the wine that Jesus provided was the best, as John tells us in chapter 2, verses 9 through 10, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He didn't realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now, unquote. Jesus wants us to know that life in him is better than life on our own. Why save the best for last? Why not start with Jesus? We're going to finish today's podcast with another New Testament story of God's power of provision. Now, that's the feeding of the 5,000, which honestly is more like 10 or 15,000 when you count the women and children. This miracle is recorded in all four Gospels. Jesus had just heard the terrible news about the death of John the Baptist, and so Jesus is going to retreat to a private place, but the crowds have followed him. It's getting late, and the disciples tell Jesus, you know, Jesus, you should probably send the crowds away so they can get something to eat. Remember, there's no fast food restaurant or a store nearby, so they need to go home. But Jesus replies in a very surprising manner that the people don't need to leave, and you, disciples, you need to give them something to eat. <laughs> to which they reply, well, all we found is this poor kid's lunch of five loaves of barley bread and two dried fish. Yum. So 
what Jesus was given, five loaves of bread and two fish, definitely seems insufficient to feed so many mouths. But in the hands of God, it becomes more than enough. Why did Jesus perform this miracle? Was it just about feeding people? No, it was to demonstrate God can use and multiply whatever we give him. In fact, it is when we give our gifts to Jesus that our resources are multiplied beyond our wildest dreams. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men, besides women and children, unquote. Now, the text in Matthew chapter 14 says besides women and children because traditionally, men and women would have eaten separately in public. And so we know the numbers of those fed was way larger than the 5,000 men. Children usually ate with the women, so estimates are this particular time, 10 to maybe even 15,000 people were fed. And then there's another story told in two of the Gospels where Jesus takes seven loaves of bread and a few fish and feeds over 4,000, which again, we know the number was even much bigger than that because it was just counting the men. So once again, the miracle shows God's ability to provide for us despite our maybe meager contribution because in God's hands, our time, our talent, and our treasure is multiplied for the glory of his name. In our next podcast, we'll continue to look at miracles in the Bible and what they show us about God's love for us. Remember, miracles are not merely superhuman events, but events that demonstrate God's power. What miracle can God perform this week with your resources? Trust in God and watch what he can do. Have a blessed day.